Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. A grand juror in Georgia goes on a media tour hinting at possible indictments, including maybe of Donald Trump. Plus, new data Friday shows that the Fed's favorite inflation measure is moving upward. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues on the editorial board, Kate batchelor Odell and Mene Ukwe-Barua. Welcome and happy Friday to you and to one and all. A special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, which is Atlanta, spent nearly eight months investigating the aftermath of the state's 2020 election and whether there could have been criminal interference with it. Many listeners will probably recall President Trump's taped phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where he denied that he had lost Georgia and urged state officials to find about 12,000 votes. This special grand jury was solely meant to investigate and make recommendations, so there are no charges yet on the table. But this week, the forewoman of the grand jury, Emily Coors, went on a strange media tour speaking with reporters at NBC, CNN, the Associated Press, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the New York Times. Here's how she replied when she was asked on CNN if the grand jury recommended criminal charges against President Trump. I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. I, I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name a lot. Uh, we definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. And here she is on NBC saying she was a little disappointed that the grand jury didn't get testimony from President Trump. Honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in? I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. Kate, I, I don't even know what to say here. I mean, the ideal of Lady Justice, the woman in the blindfold, it seems that she demands better than this. Yeah, Kyle, this is a painful episode and sort of a live demonstration of America's crisis in civic education to have someone here not treating their duties on the grand jury with particular care. Now, there are some distinctions here that some are trying to make that she's not talking about the deliberations of the grand jury, but her own experiences. But there's some really muddy waters there. I mean, she told CNN, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much information, too much of my time, too much of everyone's time. That is borderline there, putting her thumb on the scale for what she expects to happen here. And the irony, of course, is that, and Trump has said, he'll use it to try to swat down any indictments. Now, another grand jury would have to proffer those indictments. But nonetheless, this makes it look like a case where someone had a particular outcome in mind. I think in reality here, we're dealing with somebody who's not very sophisticated and talking to the media and is in over her head talking about 
what she thinks is just the most exciting thing that's ever happened to her. But I do think that to the extent that anybody wants a certain outcome here with Trump, this works well against it and will taint the process and make people think that he didn't get a fair shake or that this wasn't a serious enterprise. I agree with Kate that it seems like she is in over her head, but it does seem to me, I haven't looked at the Georgia grand jury rules and laws on secrecy enough to know if this is technically breaking them or technically not, but there are all sorts of quotes where she seems to be talking pretty clearly about what happened in the grand jury room, not only when she said in the clip we played a moment ago that the grand jury talked about that they heard a lot about President Trump. Here's a couple quotes from her. This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution interview. We heard a lot of recordings of President Trump on the phone. It is amazing how many hours of footage you can find of that man on the phone. Some of these that were privately recorded by people or recorded by a staffer. She apparently talked to reporters extensively about witnesses. This is from the New York Times write-up. Apparently, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham came in and Ms. Kors asked him whether it was too early in the year, this was Thanksgiving, whether it was too early in the year for her to wear a Santa hat. His response, she said, absolutely not. And one more, this again is to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She said the late Georgia House Speaker David Ralston cracked her up. She said she swore him in holding a Ninja Turtle popsicle she had just received at an ice cream party thrown by the DA's office. And Manet, keep in mind, this is a serious thing that we're talking about here. We're talking about citizens getting together and making a recommendation to a district attorney whether fellow American citizens should be criminally charged and put on trial and maybe sent to prison. And this seems to show a bizarre lack of seriousness about what the grand jury was actually up to. Exactly. I definitely think that you and Kate have done a great job skewering Emily Kors' seriousness, so I'm not going to comment too much on the popsicle and the Santa hat. I think our audience can make their own minds up about that. But I do think there is a more serious harm to the media tour that she's doing. Obviously, as Kate said, it's possible that the Trump team is preparing to use her statements to the press as evidence that there was very little seriousness involved in the process, that there was a collection of jurors making recommendations to the district attorney who already had it out for Trump and basically wanted to participate in this media spectacle of hanging him up on these bogus election interference charges. I do think that there's not too strong evidence that that is going to weigh on the actual legal process if and when the district attorney of Fulton County does convene the actual grand jury and potentially move forward with charges. It doesn't seem as if Emily Kors has breached any protocol that would taint the entire process, but it is something that could influence other people who are reviewing the evidence and who already have reason to be skeptical about whether the process is fair. And I also think that, frankly, in the same way that the Trump team now believes the process is biased, you now have a lot of people who have heard this four-person on the special grand jury go on a media tour basically telling everyone to expect charges coming for Trump and for others. And so if that doesn't happen, if for any reason the district attorney of Fulton County decides not to charge Trump, a lot of people might feel as if there was some kind of change of heart in the DA or 
they'll feel as if they've been snookered, basically, and will be very, very confused and very disappointed. And so it seems like no matter what the outcome here, it was not helpful for this four person to be airing the internal proceedings of the grand jury. To underline the point on the legal vulnerability here, I'm not an attorney and I've seen different commentators taking different positions on how real, how much this actually jeopardizes any potential case. On one hand, as we already said, this was a special grand jury that was convened to investigate and make some recommendations. Now it goes to Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who will make the ultimate call on whether to bring some sort of charge that will go through a separate grand jury. So there is some sort of insulation here between this forewoman and the eventual charges if we get them. On the other hand, here's a quote from former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid. She's writing on MSNBC and pointing to, believe it or not, the Popsicle incident. And she says, why on earth would grand jurors be socializing with the prosecutors? A grand jury is an independent body and prosecutors are trained to maintain a professional distance and avoid engaging in interactions that could be perceived as influencing their decisions. And so I don't know, Kate, whether this is a real legal vulnerability, but it does seem certain that if there are charges brought against President Trump or his aides, his advisors in 2020, it seems pretty likely to me that they are going to make that argument. And maybe it doesn't work in court, but maybe it works in the court of public opinion, which is also important as we talk about charging potentially a former president and a current presidential candidate. Yeah, Kyle, I mean, I think you're talking loosely about the legal vulnerabilities, but to your point, the political vulnerabilities really matter here as well. You keep in mind that there is a constituency in the country that has, I think, valid concerns about how elections are conducted and whether they're fair and whether there's substantial fraud. And we want the proceedings around these inquiries to be something that the public can have confidence in. For instance, this woman has been saying on TV, you know, we found that there was no fraud. And that's, of course, consistent with our reporting as well. But we want a finding like that to be taken seriously by the country. So when you have a show like this with the Santa hats and the Ninja Turtles and all the other follies, it really undermines the seriousness of the enterprise. Also, I just add, we wouldn't be having the same kind of valorizing or normalizing this kind of behavior if it were a grand jury for anyone other than Donald Trump. And so I do think that there are some real political vulnerabilities here. And I think the wisest course of action, as we've discussed, would be for this to be settled by voters on whether they think he is worth electing again, as opposed to trying to indict somebody who is actively running for the presidency. I think the case for an indictment was weak to begin with, and after this episode is weaker now. District Attorney Fonnie Willis has said she has not made up her mind yet on whether to bring any charges. A piece of the special grand jury's report was released by the judge, but not any piece that involves or describes any indictment recommendations. Fonnie Willis has said that her decision is imminent, but who knows what imminent means in this context. So hang tight and we'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from the Wall Street Journal. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. 
Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Meantime, bad news on the inflation front. The Federal Reserve's favorite measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, is up in new January data. This was released on Friday. And just to give a sense of some of the numbers and the context, the monthly increase in the PCE was 0.6%. That is the highest since last June. In December, it was 0.2, November 0.2, October 0.4, September 0.3. So that is a pretty big increase. And that feeds into these year-over-year averages, which is what you generally see quoted in, in the headlines or the tops of the media stories. So the journal's report today says that the PCE is up 5.4% in January year-over-year, up from 5.3 in December. And Manet, you're a close watcher of this economic data. How do you read this report today on the inflation and the problem that it creates now for the Federal Reserve? Well, the PC numbers were really disappointing for anyone who believed or hoped that inflation really had been brought under control by the Fed's previous interest rate increases. It's interesting that people tend to focus more on CPI, in part because those numbers come out earlier, but PCE has been telling a slightly different story than CPI all along, basically since inflation started to increase. And in that, PCE didn't show inflation climbing quite as high as CPI did over the summer surge, but it also hasn't shown it declining quite as much. And you mentioned that it's the Fed's favorite indicator. Part of the reason for that is that it captures the difference in goods that people consume as the relative prices of different goods and services changes. And it also captures a slightly broader scope of transactions. It captures some business transactions, including out-of-pocket purchases. And so Jerome Powell and the rest of the Fed board members believe that it's a more accurate snapshot of the direction of the economy. And so the fact that there was this increase in the 12-year index from December to January is another confirmation to the skeptics that the interest rate increases we've had so far haven't managed to cool inflation as much as a lot of people had hoped. And it definitely is a sign to the markets that it's very likely that the Fed is going to continue increasing rates to a higher terminal rate probably than a lot of people expected, and perhaps even bigger incremental increases in coming months than a lot of people expected. And it does seem like this increase in the data today may reset some of the expectations and the political debate around inflation, because there had been some recent good numbers. I think President Biden was saying, "Woo, you know, I think he was hoping that the worst was behind him. And to be fair, maybe the worst was behind him. I think we're probably past the peak. And yet here's the reaction this morning from Jason Furman, former economic advisor to President Obama. He says on Twitter, the economy is very overheated. We have made little, if any, progress on inflation. There is little, if any, reason to expect a large slowdown going forward. And then he computes the core PCE rate at an annual rate over different periods, but 7.1% over the month, 47 over three months. And remember, the Fed's target is 2% inflation, Kate. And so 
it suggests that there is a lot of work yet to be done, and this inflation beast that the United States has been wrestling with, that the president has been wrestling with, that consumers, people going to the grocery store every day and trying to fill up their gas tank, this inflation beast is unfortunately not slain yet. Well, Kyle, I for one am surprised because the Inflation Reduction Act was supposed to manage this. It's right in the name. I'm being slightly glib there, but I do think it's worth noting that the Biden administration's political response out of Congress and working with Congress, I mean, there wasn't anything there that was really going to manage the inflation problem. Quite the opposite. They threw a bunch of money at green climate subsidies. They did price controls on prescription drugs. I mean, the spending blowout that the Biden administration has presided over has contributed to inflation, but you don't see any type of pivot or changing tax. I mean, if you go back to the president's State of the Union address and try to look for a new idea, you'll come up empty. I mean, he's talking about increasing taxes, talking about blowing out the child tax credit, which I think contributed to the original inflation problem. I mean, Jason Furman, who you just quoted, I think takes a slightly different view. But if you give families uh, tremendous amounts of cash like that, I think you can expect it to be inflationary. But anyway, it has just been the same type of political response from the Biden administration, which is basically to try to use their legislative agenda to throw a bunch of money out the door and financed by debt. So I don't think the inflation problem has been solved, to your point. I think there's pain left to go. But hopefully that enduring reality might inspire some change in the policies, the fiscal and legislative policies that the Biden administration is pursuing to try to manage it. But I agree with Kate that the Biden administration does not seem interested in changing its tack here at all. If it was interested, there would be policies that it could go after. And some of them would be small or one-time policies, but you could start pushing inflation in the other direction. There was a report last year that said that raising some tariffs, including tariffs on U.S. allies, it could deliver a one-time reduction in consumer price index inflation of around 1.3 percentage points. Again, that's a one-time decrease, but yet that's 1.3 percentage points of inflation off the, the CPI. That is certainly not nothing. And yet President Biden keeps pushing in the opposite direction with more spending and policies like Buy America provisions that will make building the infrastructure and the roads that he wants to spend on more expensive in the first place. But Monet, what do you make of the prospects for the economy, given the numbers that we're seeing now today? Again, after the recent good numbers, inflation figures, there had been some talk that maybe a soft landing is in the cards after all. And I wonder if there's rethinking of that as well. And I'd point today to a CNBC story. It's on a paper presented by some economists at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And they say, we find no instance in which a central bank-induced disinflation occurred without a recession, unquote. And so, Manet, do you think that the economic worrying and hand-wringing is about to start all over again? I'm not sure it ever quite stopped. I definitely do think that there were a lot of optimists who believed that a soft lending had become more possible because of the rate at which CPI had decreased over the past few months. But the smart money seems to have been betting on recession all along. And the PCE numbers from January probably will put a little bit more weight in that direction. I do think that people have been wondering over the past few months 
which was the more telling indicator, the fact that we had seen CPI decreases pretty steadily since the peak of inflation last summer, or the month-on-month hiring numbers that showed that the economy was still very hot. And I do think that the PCE numbers kind of helped to mediate between those two indicators and suggest that the very robust hiring actually is telling the more accurate story and that the economy is still running hot. And so it does seem as if the clearest conclusion for the moment is that there are going to have to be several more months of interest rate increases, that the economy is going to have to be forcibly cooled in order to get inflation under control, and that a recession is still very likely. But of course, there are still mixed signals, and nobody knows for sure what the clearest outcome is going to be. But if the economy starts looking like less of a sure thing, keep in mind, we also have a political calendar running here. And the 2024 Republican primary is heating up. And Kate, it does strike me that President Biden had hoped that the inflation would be behind him by the time he was running for election in 2024. And I do wonder now whether some of the White House advisors and maybe President Biden himself are worrying if this is a monster that they're still going to be grappling with as we get into the 2024 election. Having inflation on your watch while you're sitting in the White House is a bad thing, but doing it while you're running for re-election is nobody's idea of a successful political background for your campaign. And Kate, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, Kyle, I mean, I think you're describing what we know is a very potent campaign theme, which is, are you better off? than you were four years ago. And so I do think if this persists, it will be a very potent theme for Republicans and they will try to pounce on it. That said, candidate quality and details do matter. And we saw inflation was raging hot during the midterms and should have been a clear winner for Republicans and they underperformed. So it's not a sure thing. And I think Republicans have to put out a positive set of ideas on exactly how they plan to manage it. Thank you, Kate and Manet. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, and we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch.